Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a story about having a hunch and following it. Following it as far as it takes you. From scary taxi rides to frozen fields of broccoli. And it begins here. My name is Ayo Alcoya. I'm a freelance investigative journalist. Ayo is a freelancer, which means she's worked at a variety of news outlets. It also means she's always keeping an eye out for inspiration. Back in 2018, she was doing a short internship at the Financial Times, jumping from one reporting job to another. It was a really short internship. It was like two weeks. That being said, I learned a lot about networking, which was actually more important. And I was doing a lot of editing, sub-editing. So that was a really good experience for me. And it was there that a report came across her desk with the vaguest hint of something in it. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. One day, while interning at the Financial Times, Io came across a document that detailed how supply chains across Europe were far from transparent, with many missing vital details about where goods were coming from. And in modern times, that mattered. But it was essentially mostly to do with problems that European countries are going to face due to the issues of migration. And actually it said that these certain countries are more prone to instances of slave labour or labour exploitation because of all these inherent weaknesses in the system that they're not combating. Ayo read through the reports and got on with her work. There wasn't time to do much else. But something in those pages stayed with her, mingling in her mind with an investigation she had come across a few months earlier. A man addressing an unseen crowd. Big strong boys for farm work, he says. 400. 700. 800. The numbers roll in. These men are sold for 1,200 Libyan pounds, $400 a piece. You are watching an auction of human beings. In November 
2017, I think, CNN did this massive investigation into the black slave trade auctions. And it made me think, well, I know that there's a very prominent trafficking route from Libya to Italy and to Greece. I know a lot of women, especially Nigerian women, are trafficked for the purpose of sex slavery. So given all these different factors, maybe migrants also trafficked for the purpose of like labour exploitation. Could the two things be connected, Ayo wondered. If people were being traded as modern-day slaves and trafficked to Europe, could they end up being part of these obscure supply chains? Could their exploitation be fueling the profits of shops and restaurants across Europe? It was a hypothesis she couldn't shake off. And so, in between every other job she was doing, Ayo got to work asking everyone she could whether there could be any connection between the horrifying slave markets and cheap migrant labour. So that started a six-month process of me continuously making phone calls to lawyers in Libya, NGOs in Italy, (laughs) with mixed results because some of them spoke Italian, some of them spoke English. I luckily had a colleague I'd worked with I think this was like three years ago. We basically worked in the same startup. And I went to him and said, I've got this story idea or this hypothesis. And he'd worked as the Middle East editor of that particular magazine startup. So he was just like, here's a list of people that I think you should probably reach out to. And I was like, okay, cool. Thank you. And then from there, it was the kind of process of emailing, getting people's phone numbers. But it's that process where people don't respond, no matter how many follow-ups you send. I know one particular lawyer who worked at a specific NGO was really hard to find. But once I did get hold of him, the information he gave actually helped me narrow down where this level of exploitation was taking place. So he was like, I think it would probably either be in construction or agriculture. And then I was like, okay, I think I'll rather go for agriculture rather than construction because that seems like a harder place to kind of infiltrate. His hunch was essentially right. And I think one of the things that journalists really need to kind of understand is just to be tenacious because it's always so difficult to be that kind of person that knocks on people's doors or or picks up the phone and cold calls them. It's one of those things where you have to continually push and push and push because if you don't, you don't get the story. You don't get that sliver of information you need that pushes you on to the next level. There was something innately driving me. I really couldn't tell you what it was because I was doing this when the signal in my house was, it still is very abysmal. So I actually had to do a lot of these phone conversations on WhatsApp or use an international calling card on my landline because I couldn't use my landline without getting charged. Then there was the additional challenge that comes with being a freelancer and trying to get people to take you seriously. I mean, this is also from previous experiences. I've contacted NGOs or specific organisation saying, I'm a freelance journalist. They're like, oh, who are you writing for? And you just say, I can't because I need the information first before I can pitch radio silence every single time. So for me, what kind of helped was saying, I've worked with this person, this person, this person, this person, and I need this material to get this to work. I need you to help me. I think also there's just a distinction that people don't understand what freelance journalism entails. And I think they think if you don't have backing, then that means you're of a lesser kind of journalists, but that's obviously not true. There are some of the best works of journalists have mostly been produced by freelancers. Little by little, she began to build a picture of what was going on, understanding more and more about how migrants moved from Africa to Southern Europe, ended up working for long hours and little pay, toiling on farmers' fields. 
actually what was taking place was migrants, when they finally get into Italy, kind of fall into a system of slavery due to various institutional failures. And then the mafia come in and they take basically a piece of the pie because this is an economic kind of system that was created over a period of time. And then I think basically what finally nailed it in the coffin for me was a this was a kind of interview I had with someone from a trade union. At the end of a very long conversation, he was just like, this is slavery. And then I was like, okay, I've got my story in terms of the fact that these migrants also are picking tomatoes. Those tomatoes then are processed and repackaged and eventually sold on like supermarket shelves that we we ourselves buy. And I was really perturbed by it because I buy, I used to buy anyway, tin tomatoes all the time. And it made me think, oh, actually, this is why it's so cheap. There is a system of labour exploitation at work here and that's why the prices are the way they are. So there's something much deeper going on in the fact that where our food comes from and where we're buying it from has all these adverse effects on people on the other side of the world. Once she thought she had enough to prove her concept, she started to pitch the story around, aware she would need backing and financing to get it any further. Which is how she ended up talking to an editor at The Guardian. I went to The Guardian Long Read. Jonathan Shannon was really passionate about the project. He was like, that's something we really want to pursue. So I sent my findings at the time, and it was basically what I'd gathered from various, like, second-party sources. So when I kind of sent my proposal over, Claire Longrig, the deputy editor of The Guardian Long Read, she sent me an email, and at the time I was I had another job that I was about to leave, so this was quite distressful, but she was like, this sounds like a really great idea, and, like, I'm so passionate about it, but it's really hard to prove, so I don't know if we can take it. It was a really distressing time for me. So I just called her and said, like, just kind of tell me what's your thought process because I'm very sure there is slavery practices happening in this part of Italy and we are definitely getting our tomatoes there. I think it was very fair of her to say that essentially you're taking a lot of material from, like, NGOs and they're due to, like, issues with their funding and all sorts of things. And it won't necessarily that they're embellishing, but they could be saying more than what there actually is for certain reasons. She was like, you haven't, I don't want to send you all the way to Italy. I definitely don't want to send you to Libya to verify this because that was initially where I was, like, trying to start this project from. So she was just essentially like, I think you need to either figure out a way to make this work or, you know, you're going to have to find something else. But Claire, the editor, did have one final piece of advice for Ayo. Talk to Barbie Latza Nadal, she said. She's a journalist who's been reporting on this kind of story for a while. She might have some tips. She essentially said that Barbie had been doing a lot of reporting on the sex slavery of Nigerian women that are trafficked over. And she's quite heavily embedded in these types of issues. So she would be one person to go to to try and verify what was going on and what was the best way to approach it. So I sent an email to Barbie. We spoke and she essentially was like, do not give up on this story. You have to do it. You have to go, regardless if it's a book or an article, it doesn't matter. Just do it. Ayo put down the phone to Barbie and took a deep breath. It was clear now what she had to do. There was only one way forward. More after this. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ayo is onto something. She has the scent of a story in her nostrils. The theory that people being trafficked as modern-day slaves from Africa could be ending up working to grow the very fruit and vegetables we enjoy in Western Europe. She hasn't managed to convince any editors to take on the story, though, so she's facing a brick wall. She could give up and move on to something more simple, something that, as a freelancer, we're guaranteed she brings in the work and pay the bills. But that isn't Ayo's style. So with what little money I had in my bank account, I booked a flight to Italy. On the plane, Ayo had a moment to pause. Just what was she getting herself into? I was like, this could be the dumbest thing I've ever done. And I'd done like HEFAT training, which is like combat medical training and understanding, you know, the dangers journalists could walk into if you don't have one enough money and two enough support outside of where you're going. I had basically neither at this point. So I think I did this on something like, I think it was like £750. <laughs> the accommodation nearly is really expensive. I remember booking my tickets and just saying to my mother, like, I'm going next week. I'll see you when I see you. I don't know how long I'm going to be out there. I basically gave myself about three weeks. I remember getting off the plane, walking outside, and it was just so hot. And I was so disoriented because I just hadn't slept because I was so nervous in how this was going to go. But there was no time to stop. I only needed to get out to the places where this kind of exploitation could be happening. And so that meant heading to remote towns far from the tourist hotspots. So I went specifically to Folger and even just to get there you have to go to a specific city called Bari and then from Bari you either get like a coach to get there which is like an hour. It was kind of like being in a war-torn area but in a highly developed country in Italy in this kind of pristine, beautiful, rustic nation. But on the other side of it, there's a huge underbelly where these conditions of destitution were just so rampant and also unseen unless you knew what you were looking for. 
There, she took a deep breath. Back in the UK, she had been desperately trying to make connections in the area, talking to NGOs and researchers who might be able to support her on her trip. But nothing had been set in stone. And this is also something I think is quite normal in foreign reporting, I guess. You say, I'm planning to come, and they're like, oh, and you want to book like a time and a date and a place as to where you're going to meet and how you're going to arrange this. And they say something along the lines of, okay, cool, so when you get here, you just give me a ring, and we can go from there. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> this, this, I don't know how this is going to go out. So I got to the airport, got into this bus... And the thing also about this part of Italy, it's similar to, like, the kind of Midwest of, like, the USA where black people are essentially outsiders. There's a lot of othering. And it was my first kind of interactions with white Italians and their interactions with me that made it very clear that this was kind of a place where racism was very overtly expressed because there was just a lot of pulling of my hair, people gawking just on the coach there so I was just like this again is just another level of danger for me but I'm gonna roll with it anyway. Arriving in Foggia, a tiny town, she found her Airbnb and settled in. She was here at last, following a hunch that had led her out to this remote place. She was on the trail, or so she thought, but then one day passed and another. The first few days Nothing really happened, and I was starting to panic a lot. But then... I managed to get a hold of the contact I spoke to before. He was like, I'm in a different place, but this is the number of a specific NGO that goes in and out of these migrant areas, these settlements. Give them a call, and they should be able to help you out. She got in touch, and the NGO workers agreed to talk to her. And eventually someone who spoke English got on the phone and then we started to converse. We can't talk to you today because we're travelling, but tomorrow, come. It was to a specific city that was about a 25-minute train ride from Folja called San Sevievo. And they were like, meet us outside the station and we'll come get you. That ended up me waiting out in the hot sun for about an hour and a half. And I was just kind of like, this is, again, not a particularly great experience. I don't know what's going to happen. And then eventually these two men rocked up, got out of the car, and they were like, get in the car and we're going to take you somewhere. And at this point, it's also, I will say, do not get in a car with strangers to anyone. However, in this particular case, it's another thing of, if I don't go with these people who I know have access to the information I need, I'm not going to get the story. And it's a calculated risk. And it was a risk I was very much willing to take so I get in the car we drive they pull over they get out and then behind us another car rocks up and all these other men get out and especially again as a woman this was again another really precarious situation I was like I could be in danger here so in my head I was looking for exit routes I was thinking of the ways that if something went wrong how do I get out where do I go how much money is in my purse who do I contact if things go particularly sour and it was to my great surprise actually they walked me inside a restaurant and they had a massive spread of food and they sat me down and they were like oh we're having lunch so we're going to discuss this over lunch and over lunch they were essentially saying oh yeah so this is what's happening with these instances of slavery this is how much money is going in to this particular people's pockets this is also a result of institutional failure on the government of the asylum system and we've been in contact with these migrants for the past, like, 10 to 15 years, because this has been going on for a really long time. This was exactly what Io needed. 
Around the table, people were chipping in with horror stories of things they'd seen. But it was one man that grabbed her attention. A slight, short man with large, expressive eyes. A man called Sid. Sid was from Gambia, and he had a terrible story to tell. His brother had been trafficked from Libya to Italy and had ended up working on the tomato fields unbeknownst to him. And it was only until a really horrific accident happened when his brother Musa was being driven in a van from the site of the farm back to where he resided in one of the settlements. There was a horrific car accident and his brother died. And he was like, I only knew what was going on until I got the phone call saying that my brother had died in this really horrific accident. Like his brother, Sid had left the Gambia for a better life. He'd travelled to the UK and been granted asylum there. But then the country's position on the Gambia changed, and by the time Musa, his brother, was ready to get out, he no longer had the option of asylum in the UK open to him. So, with little option, he made the trip overland to Libya, hoping to get to Europe that way. Musa had told Sid and his family that he was doing well, but then came news of the accident. Sid told Ayo, I travelled here to get his body and also the body of one of his closest friends. I went to this specific NGO because they were helping facilitate everything and I found out actually he had lied to me in the sense that his life wasn't what he pretended it to be. Over WhatsApp and Facebook, he made it seem as if he was experiencing a really prosperous life in Italy. What was actually happening is he was a tomato picker in the system of slavery, living in abysmal conditions, not even having access to basic sanitation. His story was also so compelling to me because it was a story that I think would resonate with a lot of people in terms of using social media to portray a life that isn't really yours in order to kind of satisfy the needs of both the people you've left behind and also just to keep a sense of pride that you haven't actually failed. The two kept talking, and Ayo realised she'd found the ally she needed. Sid agreed to take her round to the settlements in the area, places where he knew friends from back home. He'd come and take her in a few days' time, but first Ayo was heading to a settlement all by herself, and she knew she needed to navigate the situation incredibly carefully. I had to, again, go undercover in this sense because they were very wary of journalists. They were wary of foreigners coming into these areas. There had been, like, fights that had broken out over this, so it was actually very dangerous for me to even go in unprepared. So there was kind of a fixer that went with me who knew a lot of the people there. I had to pretend to be his girlfriend in this particular instance because, again, it was extremely male-dominated. The look in their eyes was very much of hunger, And I had to be extremely careful about how I was going to even interact with this fixer. So I had to pretend to be his girlfriend. And he did a very convincing job. But then it got more difficult to keep doing this because he was getting too into it. And it was, again, those kind of like, how do you navigate getting the story, but at the same time keeping yourself safe? I stood out anyway, even in spite of the fact that I was black and of African descent and I could blend in in a number of ways to them both in my accent my mannerisms that I look too fresh so to speak it was very clear I couldn't be in these spaces for too long. Despite feeling intensely uncomfortable Ayo kept her eyes open mentally taking note of everything she saw and heard. Walking into that first massive settlement, it was eye-opening to me because there was no electricity, there was no sanitation. These were houses and shacks made out of whatever they could find, like pieces of wood, 
And I was there for, I think, six hours just kind of looking around the train. I couldn't take any photos because that would be too conspicuous. But I managed to kind of, in that first instance, that third day, gather a lot of intel into exactly what was going on and the magnitude of what was going on. And just being able to just see the level of devastation in its wake, being able to see the way that they're treated by white Italians and just by the system that they've been enfolded in, it was very eye-opening to me. But it was also just something that I couldn't necessarily walk away from. For the next couple of days, I visited more settlements like that first one. Shanty towns or like these houses where it's like made out of anything they could find out, like wood, doors, mattresses sometimes were used as ceilings, anything they could find to cobble together some form of housing. And they were also saying like in parts of West Africa, we wouldn't even be living like this. Like we ran away from our circumstances for a better life and we've ended up risking our lives going through Libya, going across the Mediterranean to get here. And this was the result. In and of itself was an extremely devastating reality for them to face. With Sid by her side, she was able to tell people she was a journalist. She took photos and did interviews. But knowing how and when to stop was important too. There are times when a lot of these women were physically assaulted. One woman I interviewed five minutes before I was about to interview her, she said this man just physically assaulted her and she was so distressed that I couldn't even really bring myself to record anything of what she was saying. It gets to a point that when you're interviewing these migrants, there has to be an ethical kind of line you need to draw into how distressed are they. Are they settled enough? Are they coherent enough to have these really in-depth conversations about the lives they're living? But on the whole, Ayo found people lining up to talk to her. I think part of it was because I was a black journalist. We had the same struggles of oppression. We had all these different things we had in common. They were much more comfortable talking to me because there was a kind of instinctive trust there. And I think that's also one of the reasons why, just as a kind of side note, diversity is really so important for journalism. These are places you need access to that some groups can do very easily than others. It's also about the power dynamics at play. They were very aware of the power dynamics. After two weeks of non-stop travelling and interviews, Ayo took a step back. She travelled up to Florence to stay with a friend, and there she reflected on all she had seen. The words of that Guardian editor swam in her mind. How do I prove without doubt that this is a form of slavery? Confused, she tried calling the NGO Anti-Slavery International. Surely if anyone knew, they would. I sent them an email, and... At first, they were like, oh, that's quite interesting, but we don't have the data on it, so sorry, I don't think we can help you. I was like, no, 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 yes, you can. I rang them, and I, I rang Jacob Sorbic actually, and I said, like, no, I know you don't have the data, but you need to hear, there's a framework in which you operate. So I described the conditions to them and everything I'd seen, and then he was like, okay, yeah, everything you've said does seem to pertain that it's a form of slavery. And I asked him, like, can you, in a written form, write that back to me as a kind of proof that I've stood this up with you? Ayo also followed up with lawyers in Italy, and one of them was able to give her documents that proved a gangmaster system was in operation, with people profiting from moving and exploiting vulnerable migrants. So as she was packing up and getting ready to leave Italy, Ayo took a deep breath and contacted the Guardian editor again. I said, I've been to Italy now, I've seen all these things, I've got this information, can we meet up? And she was like, give me a phone call when you go back. So I flew back, I called Claire, I told her everything. And she was really impressed with the material. 
But then she was like, that's all great, but we kind of have a backlog situation, so I'm not sure we could take the piece. (laughs) And I was just like this. I did not just put my life at risk several times and have these really harrowing conversations with these migrants. There was a lot of emotional labour involved on their part to have this kind of specific answer. So then I was kind of in a rut and I didn't know how this was going to play out. A week later, I got an email from Claire again and she had said, there's this freelancer that has worked with us before called Tobias Jones who's pitched something similar to your piece. You came to us first, so we're not going to take him over you in this respect, but do you want to work with him? And I was actually like, you know, yes, because the piece itself, after talking to all these migrants, it became very clear to me that this was systematic in what was happening. And the piece was too big for me to tackle alone without additional help. Tobias spoke Italian and had lived there for about 20 years. He had a solid understanding of the crime networks and mafias that ran the country. So he and Ayo began working together, mapping out how the mafia groups were running these exploitative networks. And then there was more good news. With the offer of a commission from The Guardian, Ayo was able to get Pulitzer Centre funding to continue with the research. And that allowed her to travel out to Italy again, this time for a month. And now she wanted to go and see the labour in action. By now it's winter, and Ayo is out in Italy in the remote countryside once again. She's talking to a source who tells her how he works all year round, picking different crops, from tomatoes to asparagus to broccoli. And I had asked, I can actually come with you into these spaces because they they will just think I'm a normal migrant. Also, what made this work was Italians, especially in this particular region, their grasp of English is extremely low. They wouldn't be able to distinguish a British accent from an American one or even from a normal African one. So that was also something that worked in my favour. So I just said, I'm not going to take any photos that will compromise your safety, but let me just observe. And my backstory was I was just his friend that had just managed to get into Italy really recently from Nigeria. So we have a bit of the truth with a lie because I'm of Nigerian origin. And we were going in with the knowledge that this farm was probably mafia-owned or mafia-controlled. And this added a new height of this is, again, a really precarious, really dangerous situation because I don't know what I'm walking into. And if we get caught, it's not just my life that's on the line. It's Njobo and it's Njobo's friends. So I had to be very careful in the way I navigated going in. And there was a security plan put in place, but even then, it's a calculated risk. Tobias knew where I was. There was also someone else who kind of knew where I was, and he was in the next town. If something went wrong, he would be able to find me. And my kind of plan was, this is exactly where I am. But the problem is, also, I thought I could Google location it. That wasn't possible because this farm was slap bang in the middle of nowhere. I managed to kind of send, like, directions. Here you go. (laughs) This is kind of it. And I said, if you haven't heard from me from 4 p.m., sound the alarm, and we'll see where we go from there. The day of the reporting trip arrived, and Ayo was nervous. So I met Njobo around six in the morning, and I hadn't slept that night, and I was just very anxious about how this was going to go. So I got to the bus stop, and it was so dark, and also it's just these instances where you feel very alone and very vulnerable, and you 
you're worried as to how this is going to go, something going to go wrong in this first 10 minutes. I waited for him at the bus stop, but actually he sent me a message going, I'm on a different bus stop. I'll come on the bus later, but you need to get on the first stop. And I was just like, oh, this is, again, another really precarious situation. So much trust is involved in this. And he was like, my friend's going to come and get you to the right bus. I remember just waiting and waiting and waiting. And I remember seeing these three other men who were also migrants just on the side. And because at that point I'd experienced so much sexual harassment, I was very much on edge. Also a lot of racism from Italians as well. So I was on edge from both sides. All of a sudden this guy comes up to me and he was like, get on the bus. And I was like, who are you? And he was like, no, no, just get on the bus. That was Nijobo's friend, but he didn't want to clarify and then eventually I was just like can you tell me who you are before I get on this bus he was like oh I'm actually Nijobo's friend get on the bus I was like okay fine but in those five minutes when I was sitting on the bus waiting for him to get on I was terrified I didn't know how this was going to go I didn't know what was going to happen was he going to get on the bus was this plan going to fail but he got on the bus and then we travel like 45 minutes out of the city to a really remote area and it's basically we're near this old farmhouse and it's extremely run down essentially there are five other migrants in there all men all friends in Ijobo and we all introduce ourselves and again it was just one of those situations where I was like trying to understand how they even got into this situation in the first place so they were all living in one roof it was like a two-bedroom house but it was like there was no real running water they were kind of using a hearth for warmth it was freezing because this was in the dead of winter. So this was like December. So after kind of like five or 10 minutes of me just chatting and understanding what was going on, they were like, okay, so we need to go. So we got out and we got into a van and they drove to the site. So it was like this relatively big house. Behind it were acres of massive like broccoli farm. And it became very clear to me as we were driving that this was in the middle of nowhere, this was so precarious. Like, even outside of me, anything could happen to these migrants. No one would be held accountable. No one would be aware. We get there, it's like 7 a.m., and they had these really small knives that they had to just cut the stem, thick stems of broccoli. It was also so cold, there were just icy shards that they had to cut through. And they were like, yeah, sometimes it just kind of cuts into the boots. I've slashed my hands or my feet have been slashed because we don't have adequate equipment to do this and for the next six to seven hours I had to just watch them in it was five of them cutting broccoli pushing it into the car at a ridiculously fast pace continuously with I think it was like one break at the end of a cold long day seven or eight hours of watching these men laboring in the fields for three and a half euros an hour I was shocked even out still it baffles me that something like that was occurring something like that was allowed to be acceptable and the regard to their safety was completely absent the dehumanization was just so overt and even they were saying like you know it's been like three four hundred years since slavery our ancestors were doing this work and here we are again that was very difficult to witness and to see and to be very helpless whilst that level of exploitation was happening So now Ayo has seen with her own eyes the type of work these people are doing and the living conditions they face. But what happens next to that broccoli? Ayo and Tobias got stuck into the supply chain question. 
but they soon found the paperwork that did exist was so poor it was near impossible to be able to trace the broccoli on the shelf of a supermarket or the tomatoes in a tin can back to a specific farm. The thing about the supply chains of what was really clear after doing a lot of research and talking to Oxfam, looking at the documents, was the fact the certification system was highly inadequate. It didn't even make sense half the time because the way in which these farms were certified was just kind of a tick box sort of procedure. And also they would warn the farmers when they were coming with a lot of time. It was very easy to then just tell the migrants not to come to work that day or just tell them what to say. Sometimes the managers would be there whilst they were interviewing these migrants and what the conditions were like. It became very clear that the certification process didn't really mean anything. After months of work, Ayo and Tobias were nearly ready to publish. I didn't sleep the week prior to publication. I think it was also just like the constant delays and when we thought it was going to... So at first, this was actually supposed to be a 5,000 word piece and we were supposed to publish it around Christmas, which did not make sense to me because it's a really morbid time to tell people that your tomatoes are picked by (laughs) by slave labour. Then it morphed over time because we kept pushing back because all the information we started finding. And then it morphed into a 9,000 word piece split into two parts. And then eventually around June, it was going to get published. So the week before, it was kind of a mad dash to make sure the fact checking process was as tight as possible, that we knew where our sources were coming from, that we verified everything, that we put as much detail into the piece. I think it was the last 12 hours is when the lawyers decide to come and attack the piece, which is also quite stressful because if they don't give it the green light, then that's it. You can't publish it. A year's worth of work goes to waste. But luckily, we managed to get everything to the lawyer's satisfaction and it got published. On the 20th of June, The Guardian published an article called Are Your Tin Tomatoes Picked by Slave Labour? How the Italian Mafia Makes Millions by Exploiting Migrants. When it had published, I was really happy about it. But then... I think 12 hours later, I was just kind of like, oh, I was told it's called Post Project Blues. But I felt, (laughs) I don't know, sometimes near tears because that part of my life is over. And I think as a journalist, you just invest so much of yourself that a part of you when it's published and it's gone, it's like a piece of you's kind of gone with it, which sounds really emotional. But yeah, I think when you invest yourself so deeply into a subject that you really care about, especially when it pertains to your background in this particular case, it adds more of an emotional weight to it that you just really underestimate until it hits you. So that was something I did not think would happen. And it was like a kind of grieving process. You've given birth to something and have to give it away. It wasn't long before the article was having impact. It's been cited by the UN, by Oxfam. It's sparked other investigations in the Netherlands and New Zealand. And now people are way more aware of like what happens when you buy certain produce at a very cheap price. And also like doing like presentations to kids about this, which is kind of harrowing because it's a really dark subject and they ask really great questions that I feel compelled to answer. And this isn't the kind of story you can just get on with and walk away from. Indeed, Ayo is confronted by reminders of what she saw almost every day. Hey, lovely people, we are going to do a three-minute tomato sauce that is so... Delicious. Tin tomatoes. And then we're going to cut up our broccoli. Time to add the chopped tomatoes. Tomatoes in. Take a 28-ounce can of mm. whole peeled tomatoes. Or I know I'm you can make this really easy broccoli and ham hock bake. 
it's something that I didn't even think about before until I started doing this piece. And it's something that I kind of knock on the head of my friends, like, don't buy that. You don't know where it's coming from. But how does it affect your shopping? Oh, I've I stopped. I think after the first trip, I was like, and I kind of told everything to my mother in, in bursts and ways because she was like, this is so much information. And then I was like, we are not having tin tomatoes in this house at all. I can't do this. We are not buying it. I don't want anything from that part of Italy. But the problem also was, and this is something that came later in my reporting, was it's not just tin tomatoes. It's also tomato puree. It's the tomato paste on your pizza. It is so prevalent and almost everywhere that it's almost impossible to avoid it in some way. And that's the real heartbreaking thing about this entire piece is where's the social responsibility, like how much as a consumer, what can we do? That's all from this episode of The Tip-Off. Thanks so much to Io. You'll find links to her stories in the show notes. We'll have another episode out for you in a couple of weeks. And if you have a second, we'd love it if you could leave us a quick review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps people find the show. This episode was edited by Chica Ayres, and our theme music is by Dice Muse. The episode was made possible thanks to support from the Charities Aid Foundation, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and of course, our wonderful Patreon supporters. Stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.